Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first real episode with new content in the TM245 Homiletics podcast. Hope you're all enjoying your long spring break. I'm here on a cloudy Friday morning uh, recording my fourth podcast episode of the day for various classes. Going a bit stir-crazy and missing talking to people, so uh, if any of you want to get little bobblehead replicas of yourself made, I can lay them out on the windowsill here in front of me and imagine that I'm still teaching to you. Uh, full-size cardboard cutouts could also well uh, work. So, Teacher Appreciation Day, uh, there's an idea for you. Today we are going to be talking about preaching narratives. Um, now, this lecture content was going to be pushed around already because the second short sermon took longer than I anticipated. Um, so this is one place where the transition to online is actually giving you a bit of bonus learning instead of uh, possibly preventing some learning. Uh, what is prevented, however, is the opportunity for you to actually um, preach a narrative from the Gospels, which is unfortunate. Um if you run out of things to do to keep yourself entertained, you might just develop a sermon on your own for the text that I had assigned just for the practice of it. However, I do want to talk to you about preaching narratives, as these are one of the more important types of texts to learn how to preach, and in certain respects, they are more challenging. It may also be that you are preaching a narrative when you preach your Old Testament sermon or your Easter sermon. So, um, if you'd like, you can pull up the PowerPoint for... 2.5 preaching narratives. For today's lecture, at least, I'll be following fairly closely to the PowerPoint. I'm not sure how often that will be the case. As I said, preaching narratives can be particularly challenging because finding the exegetical idea is often easier for didactic or teaching passages. For example, sermons and acts or Paul's epistles or something like that. A narrative doesn't always have a clear exegetical idea, so it's going to take a little bit more legwork for you to figure out what's happening. Having said that, we should avoid the temptation as preachers to only preach in the epistles, for example, because of the ease of exegesis. So I begin with a quote from Flannery O'Connor, a noted Roman Catholic author, who says, Our response to life is different if we've been taught only a definition of faith, than if we have trembled with Abraham as he held a knife over Isaac. You'll recall as we spoke about um, expanding into homiletic moves, the suggestion that narration is one way to do this. And we've seen several people be quite effective in narrating key parts of their short sermons. A narrative allows you to evoke emotion and to capture the audience's attention in a way that a didactic or teaching-oriented lecture may not be effective. The benefit of preaching narratives is that the narrative is already laid out for us, and it's often the stories of something like David and Goliath, or of the Exodus, that even children remember first among the Bible content. However, it is challenging, as I said, to turn the narrative of the text into a full homily. Um, and this is where I think there are several hermeneutic tools that can be helpful for you. So on the next slide, I name these tools, dialogue, character development, setting, and historical time in comparison with plotted time. 
I'm going to walk you through each of these this morning and then leave you with some suggestions for how to connect this to preaching. I'll begin with dialogue. Dialogue is particularly important in Old Testament narrative. Now, there's an excellent book, uh, perhaps some of you have read it, by Robert Alter, um, in which Alter works through, he's a, a Jewish Old Testament scholar, Alter works through the way that uh, biblical narrative works. And he makes a particularly important point. Often the most significant component of dialogue concerns subtle changes that are made during the repetition of content. And these changes reveal content about the speaker. So let me give you an example. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, God commands Adam, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, in chapter 3, when the serpent arrives, the serpent asks Eve, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And note verse 2 and 3. The woman replies to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it, or you will surely die. Now, Old Testament narrative can sometimes be challenging and boring to us because of the amount of repetition. It can sometimes seem pretty strange because the style of writing narratives in ancient Israel is quite different from our cultural expectations of what a narrative should look like. And so you might miss the fact that in verse 3, Eve has introduced an additional verb here. She says that they are forbidden to eat it or touch it. You'll notice that the prohibition in chapter 2 never mentioned touching the fruit. God never denied this to them. Alter makes the interesting point that here we see Eve has already begun to distort the commandment of God, which is suggesting that she is already drifting away from her ability to obey it. Subtle changes like this can often be the basis of the most significant um, exegetical pay dirt when you're preaching. So imagine a big idea for a sermon. When we begin to distort the word of God, we pave the way toward our removal from his presence by establishing a pattern of sin. That will preach. And it's also based on a real component of the text that if you're not familiar with Hebrew dialogue, you might miss out on it. This is only one example. Another one could be in Genesis again, the Joshua cycle. Joshua's brothers uh, sell him to um, sell him to slave traders, and initially his brothers do not take responsibility for what they've done. Um, and even when um, they have first seen Joseph. We see the brothers do not take responsibility for what they've done, but you can compare uh, Reuben's lack of taking responsibility for Joshua with his taking responsibility for Benjamin uh, when Joshua demands that they bring their younger brother back to him. And those subtle differences in dialogue, there's a lot of parallel there, but those subtle differences uh, reveal something about the moral development of the character. Joshua's brothers um, I've been saying Joshua, Joseph's brothers, 
I don't know why I've been doing that recently. Joseph's brothers, the one who sold into slavery, interprets dreams, becomes second most powerful in Egypt. His brothers are um, being sanctified, we might say. So dialogue. Dialogue is the first important component in interpreting narratives. Second, character development. Character development is rarely straightforward through narratives. Often we see fairly complex figures, good in some areas and not good in others. Uh, Jacob might be an example here. In biblical narrative, Old and New Testament, a key means of character development is often contrasting characters. The Jewish leaders, for example, are often set up as a foil or a contrast with Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee is set up as a foil with the sinful woman. This is a common narrative means of conveying important themes and morals of the story. So if you can find such a contrast, it's helpful to preach on it. Having said that, however, it's also worth noting that sometimes in order to make the contrast, certain figures might be depicted in a worse light than they could be if a more full story was told. Oftentimes, this is the case of, quote, the Jews in the Gospel of John, for example, or the Jewish leaders in the Synoptics. At the time this was written, much of the audience was Jewish, the authors were Jewish, and it posed less of a social problem. But these contrasts may be worth noting in a modern context, particularly in the many congregations where most of those who are listening are Gentiles. We don't want to accidentally promote anti-Semitism. A second means of character development is not just juxtaposing characters in contrast with one another, but juxtaposing or placing side by side a character with teaching. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, um, and I believe my understanding is most of you have read Richard Hayes' The Moral Vision of the New Testament for your four-semester Bible sequence. If you read that, you will see in Hayes a great analysis of Mark. But he points out how often Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and about bearing your cross is placed immediately next to a narrative where the disciples just don't understand what it means to be Messiah. So the characters of the disciples are illuminated by the teaching that occurs immediately after their boneheaded stories. That juxtaposition can be very important in unpacking the meaning of dialogue or narrative. So pay attention to dialogue, pay attention to the development of characters. Peter would be an example there in Mark. Pay attention to the setting. There are recurring settings that are often used in the Bible to convey similar situations. For example, wells in the Old Testament. Wells are typically a place of meeting where there's going to be a significant transaction. The patriarchs often meet their wives at a well. Wells may be a place where a financial exchange of some significance happens. If the scene is a well, you should be primed to expect a certain sort of transaction. Oftentimes when I teach the exegesis of narratives, I will play, um, I will play a trailer 
for the movie Cowboys and Aliens, or Cowboys versus Aliens. If you've seen this before, the trailer opens up with a very typical Western scene. There's a saloon, there's a grizzled looking gunslinger, guns at his waist, he walks in, he's ready for a drink. Um, and then there are spaceships and lasers and things exploding left and right. As soon as you see the setting of a saloon, culturally we are primed to expect a certain type of story and narrative and immediately certain things that stand out as atypical might strike us as particularly important. Aliens in a Western movie, for example. The same is true of common settings like a well. So when we see Jesus come to a well and meet the Samaritan woman, we expect there to be some sort of transaction but what the reader in the first century might not have expected is that Jesus bestows the gift of salvation to her and to many of the people in her community. Mountains are another example. Mount Sinai uh, being a noted one, Mount Ararat. Mountains are places where God conveys important truths to humans. The Mount of Transfiguration. Paying attention to the setting and other places in the Bible where this setting is significant can help us understand what we should expect from the narrative and what we should be looking for. One final point, it's important to pay attention to the distinction between plotted and historical time. Plotted time refers to the order in which events are revealed in the narrative. Historical time refers to the order in which events occurred in history. So if you've seen movies, the plotted time may not be the same as the historical time if the movie uh, relies on phenomena like flashbacks. Or one of my favorite movies, Memento, um, actually explores the life of a man who has interior grade amnesia. He cannot make new memories. So the plotted time actually begins with the last event in the historical narrative and works backwards because the character can't remember what happened before. Here, historical time and plotted time are actually complete opposites. And we see a number of different examples in the Old Testament, for example, uh, where plotted time and historical time may not be exactly the same. I find one particularly significant um, involves the stories of Abraham. Um, one thing that we often assume based on the plotted time on the narrative is that Abraham is in regular communication with God. However, if we expand this into historical time, it seems that actually there were only several dramatic points in Abraham's life that we know of where God revealed himself in dramatic ways to Abraham, but we are not given anything that leads us to expect that his experience was much like Adam's, a daily powerful interaction with God. There could be significant spiritual payoff from noticing this difference. Now, this is only a crash course in exegeting narratives. If you want more, again, I recommend Robert Alter. Uh, there's also an excellent introduction to biblical interpretation by Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard that might be worth exploring. I think perhaps you use that in your hermeneutics course. For now though, that's all I'm gonna be able to give you. I might recommend some exercises. On your PowerPoints, I have a slide with several passages. You might consider how these 
different dimensions of exegesis play out in those passages. Uh, or you might just try turning to a narrative of your choice and see which of these features you may be able to identify. Don't have time or the ability to do exercises very well over podcasts, though. So instead, let me move on and talk about tips for preaching the Gospels. So, tips for preaching the Gospels. First of all, preaching narratives in the Gospels don't necessarily need to limit themselves to a single pericope. So what's a pericope? You may not know or remember the word. A pericope refers to a single unit of teaching or narrative or dialogue. That's a pericope. Oftentimes in your text, pericopes are set apart by section headings, which of course were not present in the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament or in the Hebrew of the Old. When you preach the Gospels, you don't necessarily need to limit yourself to a single pericope. And in fact, I believe it was Rebecca who rather effectively in one of her short sermons expanded beyond the pericope assigned to give us context for what was happening in the larger narrative. I think that was her first short sermon, if I recall. Forgive me if I'm giving the wrong person credit. You don't need to limit yourself to a single pericope, but it is important to focus on a single thematic unit. A single overarching theme that can fit within a big idea. A perfect example of this, uh, one of the earlier sermons that I preached, I was recently out of seminary and we were attending a church in Chicago and they asked me to uh, do a sermon for the congregation. They like to give uh, younger seminarians and recent graduates opportunities to preach. It's very excited about the opportunity. The problem is that they gave me several pericopes that did not, in fact, lend themselves to fitting together very well. So, I was teaching um, not only on God and Caesar, so the question of, should you pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Not only on that, but also on the Sadducees and the resurrection. Sadducees try and trick Jesus and say, is there a resurrection? Well, what about a woman who's had seven husbands die? Who's she going to be married to? And on the two greatest commandments and on the question about Christ. So Matthew 22 there. Not only that, but I was asked to include a component related to Advent because it was during the Christmas season. That's four different thematic units crammed into a single sermon. And I can tell you, I think I pulled it off moderately well, but still, big picture, it was a mess. Given the circumstances, it was okay, but that should have been three to four different sermons. Be careful there. Second, pay attention to what we might call Two horizons, Jesus' time and the time of the gospel writer. Jesus lived in, Jesus' ministry at least, was in around A.D. 30. The earliest the gospels were likely written would be A.D. 50, 20 years later. Think of the difference between the year 2000 and the year 2020. In 2000, 
Uh, most phones were flip phones. Now we have the iPhone. In 2000, we were worried that the world was going to end because of Y2K and dates and computer programs not having four digits, but only two. We anticipated the collapse of all technology as we know it and violent wars as a result. Foolishness, here we are. We have new fears today. Won't bother naming them, they're probably very clearly on your mind. But the difference between those two horizons might lead the same story to have a very different meaning in different contexts. Why did Jesus make a certain teaching? Why 20 years later did Mark decide to include Jesus's teaching in his gospel? Either of those points may help you in preaching. Third and finally, select a form that flows with the narrative. So, if you're preaching on a narrative and you try and make a five-point sermon, that's actually going to undermine the effectiveness of the narrative. Inductive preaching can be very effective in narrative preaching. So, those are some examples on tips for preaching the gospel. I have a final slide where I suggest that you note the author's purpose and distinctive theology. How does a gospel passage fit within Luke? within Matthew, within Mark, and there's a nice little chart there that emphasizes some of the key themes of each author. But hopefully you'll know more about this from your various uh, courses that you've taken in the Bible. Final tip, when you're thinking about preaching a passage, it's always better to explain what a passage is doing in the larger picture of the book that it's in than to compare the passage with a different gospel account in a way that silences any distinctive theology. For example, Luke is very concerned about social ethics. So his Beatitudes include, blessed are the poor. Of course, there's the historical question, is this something that Jesus originally said? Is this a modification that Luke introduced? We can table that for now and say that Luke is trying to make a theological point made frequently without throughout his gospel. Now we could compare that with Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, and when you preach, simply explain away blessed are the poor by saying Luke means poor in spirit. But if you do that, you're going to miss some of the unique theology of Luke. So, tips for preaching in the Gospels. You don't have to limit yourself to a single pericope, but do focus on a single thematic unit. Pay attention to the two horizons of Jesus' time period and the Gospel writers. Note the distinctive theology of each author, select a form that flows within the narrative, and pay attention to how a passage fits within the particular gospel where it's found more than you should do cross-gospel comparisons. Those tips should help you if you find the opportunity to preach the gospels or preach biblical narratives as a whole. Thanks for listening. Hopefully that's been helpful. If you have any questions, feel free to write me, and I wish you all the best as you continue with this week's online course content. Signing out for now, this is the end of this episode of the Homiletics Podcast. Be well.